Well, good morning, New Philly. Acceptance is a real need. Whether you go to work and you're the new person or you're starting a new relationship or you're just going into a new setting, acceptance is real. We all know this firsthand, but I also know this firsthand. Um, As some of you guys know, I used to do college ministry. Now, when you do college ministry, believe it or not, your attire alone can do about 50% of the respect that you can gain from your students, right? So I would like, you know, buy shoes asking myself, what's popular with the college students these days? Because if I buy the right shoes, right, they'll come up and they'll be like, dang, Pastor Billy, kick game strong. And I was like, strong indeed. Right? I don't even, what does that mean, right? But I remember there was a very important transition that I had to make in my wardrobe if I knew I was going to take a step closer to these collegians. And that wardrobe step, I'm I'm a little bit ashamed to even say this. I guess it's not so shameful anymore, right? Because it's more the norm. But, you know, back in the day, right, everyone used to wear like, if you guys are like from the Levi's days, right, you know, everyone used to rock like 501s, you know, a little bit, they're more straight fitting and stuff. And then I remember as a trend started changing, it dawned on me. If I want to gain the respect of my college students and put the hip in hipster, I got to buy me a pair of skinny jeans. I will never forget the day where I was making this decision, right? Because here's the thing. When you're trying to be cool with just people in general, right? You can't like try to be cool. You just have to be it, right? Which meant this, translation. If I end up buying these skinny jeans and I try them on once, there's no turning back. Because if I go back to regular fitting jeans, they're going to be like, oh, he couldn't do it, right? Oh, Pastor Billy chose the route of going down the loser path, right? He, he, didn't, he didn't pull, he didn't go through all the way. So I knew this was a big shift in so many ways, right? Not just in terms of my appearance, but even in terms of how I felt. I never felt anything like that in my whole life, right? Um, the things that we do for the sake of acceptance, and I know in Korea, it's even all the more strong, right? Because appearance matters so much in different parts of the world the things that we're willing to do to find acceptance wherever we go. And this is no different in the church. In the church as well, although we say that this is the safest place to be, it is also one of the most threatening places to be for many people. Because even in the church, there is a way, there is a trend towards acceptance. I think that trend, and I think the way that people try to find their acceptance at church is by being holy, good, playing the part, doing the act, right? If you run into a fellow Shilin member at a coffee shop and you see them turning their Bibles, right? And you look over and you see that their Bible has a lot of highlights and underlines, right? What do you assume? Wow, what a, what a great guy, right? Oh, I feel so safe around them. What, because they color their Bible? Oh, you show up to a prayer meeting, right? Who do we think are the holiest peoples at the prayer meetings? Right? If you're loud, you go, wow, I could trust that brother, right? Or about when you show up to church, right? Worship's playing. How do you measure people's holiness? Well, this one's a lot easier. 
you measure their holiness by the height of their hands, right? If you're like, you're, you're kind of into it, you, what do you do? You do one of these, right? You look around and you, and you go, yeah, Jesus, yes, right? Yeah. See, but you have to go from the receiver to now the giver of worship. Oh. Okay, there's no bearing, no inherent bearing on your holiness depending on your hand position, right? But we far too often just look at how people are acting as the measure of how much we should deem them acceptable in the church. And it is difficult, though. And I've been talking about this for the past few weeks as we've been going into the life of Paul and as we started our Galatians series last week, right? It's often difficult to measure the motivation of any person just by their actions alone. And yet it's the best that we have. It's the best that we have on a human plane to be able to dictate what someone is or what they aren't. But today, I want to talk about this question of acceptance in the church. Specifically, the question I want to raise and I want to pose this afternoon is the question of what does acceptance look like in the church of Jesus Christ? What does the gospel say about the way that we should deal with this issue of acceptance as we relate with one another in this place called church? And so today, we're going to be going back into the book of Galatians, right? We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. And I know last week, we did a lot of covering of context, background, and these things. But today, I wanted to just hinge on a few important verses as we look at the passage. But I want to just continue on in the context of what is being posed in Galatia. Again, I mentioned last week how Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia about how there was this issue, right? There were these false teachers, these Judaizers, these guys who said they had inherent authority because they knew all the apostles in Jerusalem. They show up one day and they're saying, man, you know what? If you want to be a legitimate Christian, you want to be really holy, then you got to go all the way, right? You got to eat like a Jew if you're going to be a real Christian. You got to act like a Jew. You can't hang out with non-Jews. You got to set yourself apart. You got to be holy. You got to be all these things. Heck, as we'll even find out later on in Galatians, these Judaizers were going around to the men, the Gentile men in the churches of Galatia saying, you want to be really accepted and holy? Then you got to get circumcised. Yikes. Sisters are like, I don't know what he's talking about. You don't have to know. (laughs) All the men cringed mightily in their hearts, right? They were setting up all these rules to determine the measure of acceptability. And as we land in Galatians chapter 2, we're going to fast forward, but I want to paint the picture of what happened early on, okay? Paul says that he actually had to have a talk, a very serious talk with the apostle Peter. Y'all guys know Peter, right? He's represented and spoken of as Cephas in Galatians, right? But Paul says that when Peter came back to Antioch, he approached him to his face. That's the biblical translation. I, I talked to him to his face, right? So it's not just like common lingo when you're talking about confrontation. Man, you know, say it to my face. Paul started it, okay? okay? He went up to Peter and he told him to his face, Peter, you are not in line with the gospel. Oh, I don't know. Like that gives me chills even in saying that because you could say, man, you're stupid. You're ugly. You can insult people in all these ways. But if you go up to a Christian, a believer, no less an apostle, right? An apostle, someone who's responsible for shaping the faith in the early church. And you say, you're not in line with the most important thing that you're preaching. That's offensive. Because here's what was going on. 
Peter, who was sent to Galatia as a delegate of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, was called to minister to the Gentiles, to draw a bridge between the Jews and the Gentiles so that they could all share in the same faith. And of course, this is the same Peter who received the revelation from Jesus himself that there's no more wall between Jews and Gentiles. And yet it was the same Peter. The moment these Judaizers arise, what does he do? Fear of man kicks in. Oh, I got to please all these people. I got to make sure that they're happy. So you know what he starts doing? These Judaizers say, start saying, Peter, you can't, you can't eat Gentile food. You got to be clean. Stop eating that stuff. And Peter goes, oh, okay. And they go, Peter, why are you still eating with them? Stop eating with them, Peter. Come eat with us. Peter, though he be an apostle, was at this moment in time struggling with racism and elitism. And he's one of our apostles. And so to discover the answer to this question, how do we deal with acceptance? How does acceptance show itself in the church of Jesus Christ? We're going to examine a few passages in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul begins to describe to Peter directly about how Jesus deals with acceptance in our own lives. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verses 16 and on. Verses 16 and on. When you're there, let me hear you say amen. Oh, that's, you guys are already there. That's awesome. Oh, sorry, I wasn't asking for a repeat. I was just, oh, that's so good, you know. Sorry, I was having a moment. Okay, here we go. Verse 16. This is what the word of the Lord says. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what is Paul saying? What is Paul saying about our acceptance in front of God and in front of Jesus? Well, he's saying this. You could never work hard enough good enough, well enough, strong enough to earn your salvation in him. Simple reason is this. Nobody in their sinful and fleshly state could measure up to the holiness of God's being. Now, while this might be extremely difficult to swallow, if our works were the only means to which we would get saved or justified, it's not. Paul is saying Christ has provided himself as the ultimate sacrifice, as the ultimate work for us to find our salvation in. And yet, Paul begins to begin his argument towards Peter with this idea of justification. How are you going to justify yourself to be accepted? Or are you going to be justified by something else to find your justification and acceptance in the church? Paul begins with this because this is a very important hinging point in terms of not only Galatians, but in terms of our faith overall. And it's really posing the question of, do you find your security in what you do or who you are? It's a question of identity built upon your worth that comes from within or your identity that comes from your sense of worth in what you do. You know, as I've been getting older, you just meet more professionals, right? Just by age alone, right? Because like people who are around my age, my peers, they're no longer just students and these things, but you're working professionals, right? 
Now, sometimes like, I go out to meet people, and it's like, it's so fascinating because, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm a pastor who's just ghetto and I need to, you know, step up my, my professional game, right? But I'll meet people, and the first thing that some people will do is they go, here's my business card. And I go, I didn't know I asked for one, <laughs> right? Right, but they feel like it's really important that they establish this relationship with a business card. I have nothing more than a smile and a handshake, right, to offer, so I feel really small and little, right? But they give me these business cards, right? And I go, oh, I see what you did there. I see why you gave me your business card, right? You know, it says such and such name, doctor, right? MDiv, PhD, THM, Super, Z, ABC, XYZ, Esquire. I don't even know what Esquire means. It just sounds fancy, right? But they put all these things, right? Graduated from Harvard, Yale, Princeton at the same time. I don't know, right? Like, no, really, I look at their business card and I go, wow, wow, like, you're really cool. You're really cool. Like, you have a lot going for you on your resume. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I ask myself as I'm talking to this person, these people, what if they didn't have any of that? What if I was just talking to you and dealing with you as a person would deal with another? Human to human. Not like human to your degree, to your position at work, to your background, to your bank account, to how much you make. And then the human's there. You see, I think Paul addresses this idea of where you find your salvation, not just as a means to make a theological statement, right? Oh, yes, the gospel means that you're saved apart from your works. But did you know that it goes deeper than that? Many of us structure our lives around what we do rather than who we are. But you see, the folly of structuring our lives around what we do is that suddenly your security in life becomes paper thin. Your six-figure job can go just like that. We saw this in 2008 with the financial crisis that took place across the world. It wasn't just the bankers that were affected. Nearly all segments of the economy. So what happens when you don't have the car, you don't have the house, you don't have all these things, you don't have all the places that you had put your security in, they just disappear where are you going to find your worth then? Where are you going to find your worth then? The reason why Paul brings this discussion up and why it's important as we're talking about acceptance is that far too often we find our acceptance through what we can offer. Now, there is a place for that. There is a reason why good works are called good works, right? The answer to you're not saved by your works is not all of a sudden then be a bad person, right? Be a terrible human in society, right? Go steal something. Or, you know, go hurt someone. It's, that's, not, that's not the thing. Good works are still called good works for a reason. And God delights in them. He does. But here's the thing. Good works were never meant. What you do was never meant to be the source of defining who you are. When I used to, when I used to work in the college ministry, I had, I had a staff member, um, one of my disciples. And he, like, he would always say this to me. And in the beginning, it really bugged me. He, he'd pray for me. He goes, yeah, yeah, Pastor Billy, I'm just praying for you right now. I feel like God is just saying, he, he calls you Billy. 
not Pastor Billy, but he just says, Billy, you're my son. And like, I would receive it, but I would be like, no, man, but I'm, I'm Pastor Billy, right? Oh, yeah, you know, I'm a pastor, right? Right, but then as I would start thinking about this, and I pray about it, I'd be like, God, why am I so bothered? And God would be like, because your security is coming from your position, not your personhood as it's tied to me. So I started, I began to delight every time he would tell me that, right? He became one of my greatest advocates in ministry. He would always say that when things would start getting tough, and then he would be like, you know, we'd have staff meetings, be like, oh, Pastor Billy, you know, these people, they're not happy with you. I'm like, great, want to die, right? Because my worth comes from, you know, I feel good when they say good things about me, but I can't stand it when they don't, right? But then he would go, Pastor Billy, your first name is not Pastor, right? It's Billy. You're my brother, right? And I'll be like, thank you, man, right? And it's, these are important moments where we need to be reminded that we're not established by our deeds. While our deeds speak to who we are, my deeds themselves don't say all of who I am. It's a silly, silly illustration, right? But, you know, to give homage to the NBA finals that are going on right now, it would be like this. Just because I shoot a basketball doesn't mean I'm Stephen Curry. Some of you guys, yes, we know that. <laughs> Clearly, okay. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Just because I shoot a basketball does not mean I'm Stephen Curry. But if I'm Stephen Curry, boy, can I shoot a basketball. You guys understand what I'm saying? Just because I do good works does not mean I'm a child of God. But because I'm a child of God, I do good works. Because my acceptance doesn't come from what I do. My acceptance has already been bought into who I am. Jesus paid a price that I don't have to pay onto more. He already covered the check. He already covered the bill. And so I need not worry. Which points to this important principle. When God saves us, he's not just trying to change our behaviors and actions. We think that in the church. You want to climb up? You want to be more acceptable? Then do better. Oh, you want to be a CG leader? Man, you better read that Bible. What? You only pray 50 minutes a day? How dare you not go to prayer mountain for 25 hours a day? Right? <laughs> right? We think that. We think that God measures our acceptance based on our actions alone. Yet, God, when he saves us, when he saves us, is not seeking to change what we do. In salvation, God seeks to change totally who we are from the inside out. I want to illustrate this further. You know, when I recommitted my life to the Lord in college, right? College is just a fantastic time to give your life back to the Lord. Because you will never have as much time as you do when you're in college. You college students are like, what are you talking about? No, I'm the busiest person in the world. Joke's on you when you have kids, okay? <laughs> right, but I remember when I got saved in college and I rededicated my life back to the Lord, something changed. I hated reading. 
Like, I, I absolutely detested reading. Through high school, I probably didn't read more than, like, two books combined. Because I did all of it through SparkNotes, right? Like everything on SparkNotes. I, I can't believe, you know, I, I'm ashamed to say this, but I'm saying it anyway, okay? One of my high school finals for my English, English composition class, it was like, I, they gave us the prompt, you have to write about this. About, I forget what book. It was like one of those classic books that we had to read. And I just read the summary on SparkNotes. And I made up the entire thing. And, the, and my teacher was like, you did so good, right? <laughs> so bad. So bad. But Jesus saves, amen. <laughs> but one of the things that changed after I got saved in college was I just suddenly my taste buds to specifically read the word of God went through the chart, the roof. It, it was like, and it was crazy because it was like, it was kind of like a localized revival that took place on our, uh, our college ministry at that time. You know, I was at a college ministry. We were known to be like the, the, it was like the college ministry where everyone with a second chance comes back to, you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Like everyone has a past, right? I might've been like the only one that didn't have a past, but I really wanted a past, you know? But like all of a sudden, around the same time, we all started encountering the Lord together, like all at once. And it was, it was fantastic. That summer, we started this ministry called Manna for Manna, right? Yeah. <laughs> Man, Sam Choi is loving this one, right? Yeah. What, what does that mean? Manna for Manna, right? Manna in Korean means meat, right? So you meet for manna. And of course, manna in scripture is, is when God provides food for his people. So we would have these times where we would like just meet. As, as, as just friends to read the Bible together, right? Sometimes we would meet in people's apartments, right? Or sometimes we would just go to like Starbucks or we would go to Borders Bookstore. Some of you guys might remember from like, you know, the Stone Age when Borders used to exist, right? Before it was taken over by Barnes and Nobles, right? We would go there and we would easily spend five, six hours. So, you know, sometimes when you meet with each other, you're like, Hey, how many verses did you read this week? Or how many chapters did you read, right? We would go, how many books did you finish today? Yeah. That, that, was our, that was how much stuff had changed in just our culture at that time. Really, I mean, we, we would, I remember one particular occasion, like we were at Borders, right? There were like 20 of us, okay? And we we're just all reading until like the worker had to come and say, we're closing. We had to get kicked out. And then we were on our way back. Going, hey, should we, hey, should we go to someone's apartment, Yicha? Right? To just read more. <laughs> this is how crazy it was. And yet, here's the thing. No one in their right minds at that time said to themselves, I'm doing this to get saved. I'm doing this to feel more acceptable. We're, I mean, it's, it's, by the time you pass a few hours, you're not doing it to get something from someone else. You're just doing it because you just want to. Now, I'm not saying that for us, that that's going to be your sign of true transformation. There's so many other signs of transformation in all of our unique journeys with Jesus. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. We know the difference when we are working out of our delight versus working to establish our security in someone or something. This is the difference. And so even as the old reformer, Martin Luther, 
good old Mark would say. He said, salvation is by faith alone. But faith never comes alone. Faith always brings a posse, a gang, a crew with him. This is very important. And so in relation to our obedience, right? Obedience is important. Amen? But we accept one another based on the free offer of acceptance that Jesus has already given to us. The way Jesus relates with us is the way that we're called to relate with one another. This is the way of Jesus. Now, I want to say this. As I'm talking about how much, you know, good works play its part, not in terms of our salvation, but in terms of our delight, I want to make a comment on how the gospel, right? When we talk about the gospel as Christians, we think, wow, it's such good news. It's so great that it's not your works, but it's just the work of Jesus Christ and our trust in him that saves us. But did you know that if you talk to most non-believers, if you just talk to people on the outside, the gospel is very offensive to them. And I'll tell you why. The reason why the gospel is offensive is that if you deem yourself a good person based on the good things that you've done with your life, and you're telling them those things don't matter, that could be very difficult to swallow. Someone who says, man, I've given so much for the good of society. I've done all these things, and you're telling me that Jesus doesn't look at that towards my salvation. Now, Jesus, I want to I say this again. I want to be very clear. Jesus looks at those things that people do, and he says, awesome, great. You're doing a good deed. You're helping the homeless. You are speaking on behalf of the orphans and the widows. These things are all outlined in Isaiah and throughout Scripture. Jesus will say, those are great and awesome things, and you are following my heartbeat. But here's the thing. Those are good things that are of God, but those things are never the basis by which we look at God and say, so you accept me, right? That's why you say you choose me, right? Because to God, our best deeds wouldn't compare to the worst part of his existence, which is, does, it's not even, there's no worse thing. There's no bad thing about God. The best of us doesn't measure. That's why this word holiness is in the Bible. The word holiness, the holiness of God means this. Are you ready for my translation? Okay. The holiness of God means he's like really different from us. That's what holiness means. Set apart. Unlike me. So if God is unlike me in his purity, in his righteousness then what righteous thing could I do on a human sphere that would make me acceptable by him? So I want to make that clear again. Does God accept good works? Absolutely. But never as the basis of our acceptance before him. Yeah. The distinction. Okay. So we have to understand that in order for the gospel to make sense in the community, it means you don't measure each other based on what you do or what you don't do. Because Jesus doesn't do that with us. You measure one another by the inherent dignity that every person has by being created in the image of God. 
This is why. You should have no problem looking at a non-believer and saying, God loves you. God loves you. God loves all men. Scripture says that God desires for all people to come to salvation. We should have no problem telling someone that God is in love with them because he made us. Not based on our works, but just who we are in him. But now, Paul has more to say about the nature of our obedience to the law and its relation to our acceptance in Christ. Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What is Paul saying? And I think the crux of it comes in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And we need to get the right understanding of obedience here today together. Some of us look at the Ten Commandments or all the 630 some odd commands that are found in the Old Testament. And we say, ah, God gave those things to us so that we can live up to them. Friends, I can't live up to ten things that Pastor Daisy asked me to do at home. Okay. On a fantastic day, I'll hit like nine. Okay. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Maybe nine is too generous. Okay. I think I do a good job though, right? But 630, of course, not all 630 of those laws would apply to us in the new covenant today. But even still, just following the Ten Commandments even today, if your life depended on it, that you never break any one of those Ten Commandments, friends, we would have gone to hell and back so many times in the past day. We just can't. We are unable. So when Paul says, In verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. This is what he's saying. Paul is saying, in the past, I thought the law was something to be upheld. I thought I could keep it. And again, is it a good thing to want to keep the law? Absolutely. I still believe in that today. I still believe that all the principles of the laws of God in Scripture still apply to us today as far as how much delight that we can find in life. However, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I used to think that the law was something that I could measure up to. But what I found was this. God gave me the law not to tell me just what to do on its own, but he gave me the law to show me who he is. I want to say that again. God has given us the law to show us who he is. Do we not express ourselves to others in the forms of requests and commands? Hey, could you do that for me? Hey, if you love me, would you X, Y, Z? There is a revelation of a person's character that's given through the requests and the commands that they offer in relationship. Paul is saying, I figured it out. God gave me his law not to make me tied by it so that I feel like I have to keep it to the T, although I tried. But here's what I figured out. God gave me his law to show me how very unlike me, how awesome, how great, how holy, how far above he is compared to me. And so he says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. This is a very profound statement. Some people try to live by the law and they will die by it. What does that mean? 
When you live a life of just trying to be that person who does all the right things at all the right times, you will die when you discover that you can't do all the right things at all the right times. In fact, we do all the wrong things at all the right times. We find a way to do all the wrong things and create even wrong times. (laughs) But Paul is saying this. But if you make the measure of your life not obedience to the law, but obedience and faith and love for a person, namely God, then the law will come with it. I want to illustrate this. Have you ever had a desperate friend? Like desperate for love friend? Yeah, we all have, right? And you have to give them advice like, yo, don't be so desperate. Like calm down, you know, be cool, be cool. Act like you don't care, you know? Right? We give these sorts of advice, right? I feel like sisters are really good at this. Sisters have mastered the art of like, like looking at a guy, right? Like Pastor Daisy would do this. Like she would look at me and I'd be like, why is she looking at me? And then she would look, look away and i go, why did she look at me like that? Why is she so cool? Why am I thinking of her right now, right? Women know how to plant these thoughts, you know? Man, it worked fabulously, right? But, but check this out, right? If you have a desperate friend, they're like, I would do anything to get with that person. Huh, that's, let's break that down. I would do anything to get with that person. Means that that person has just subscribed to a set of do's and don'ts in order to find a person as though they were a prize or a goal or an object to be earned. I would do anything to be with that person. Or, I love that person. Therefore, I just do what pleases them to the best of my ability. This is a difference between living by the law and living by faith. Faith's rule and measure is not perfection. Faith's rule and measure is love. And love has room for faults and failures and mistakes. Hear me out this. Hear me out on this, okay? We often treat people as though they have to abide by a measure of perfection. No relationship could ever be founded on perfection because then no relationship would exist, at least on a human level. The only person who has demonstrated perfection for us on our behalf is Jesus. He is the perfect sacrifice, which is why he says, You don't have to do what I've already done for you. So when you choose to do something today for me, you're not doing it to try to measure up because I've already measured up for you. When you have kids, you will understand. My son, he just is, to me, okay, to me, he's the most adorable fireball that I've ever encountered in my life. But my son has a terrible habit of like, he'll be eating something, like his baby food, and he feels compelled to share it with me. Like sometimes it's pretty good, right? Because like Pastor Daisy cooks like bomb stuff from like, yeah, give it to me. Come on, come on, right? But sometimes he's like eating like baby stuff. And I'm like, that belongs in your mouth and yours alone. See, but he, it's like the darndest thing when kids do this. He comes to me, he goes, Abba, Abba. And it is the smallest thing. In comparison, I am 
your father. I am Billy. I am so much older, so much bigger than who you are. Your measly little cracker that tastes like nothing does not measure up to the finest of snacks that I dine on. Churros. Kabuki chip. (laughs) Korea has some fantastic snacks, yo. Right? Doesn't even compare. But you know what? When he gives me his little cracker, it tastes like the best thing in the world. Why? Because the measure by which he offers his cracker to me is not perfection. If my little guy needed to perfect it, I'd be like, yo, Jed, you ready? Write this down. You got to go to a Michelin star rated chef, and I want you to bring me back like the finest cuisine in the world. Go. He can't go out of the house on his own with his pants on. Just like we can't even start to please God on his level. And yet, our acts of goodwill, good works, and sacrifice mean the world to God. Why? Because God has established that the measure by which he defines our relationships is by faith, not perfection. The love that comes from faith. This is what makes relationships so beautiful. This is why when your best friend totally misses the mark and they get you the gift that you hate. Oh, I so didn't want that for my birthday. But what? You look at their effort. You look at their motivation. You look at their heart and you say, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for that. This is what justification by faith alone means. I do, not because I have to, but for you, God, because I want to. So verse 20, Paul says, many of us know this passage. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The all-important statement. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If my salvation, if my acceptance in front of God, And if my measure of acceptance in front of others is just based on their righteousness towards a community, towards me, or mine, towards God, or theirs, towards God, then Jesus died for nothing. Jesus shouldn't have even come. Why? Why, if you're going to just try to build up your life from your own works, did Jesus even need to arrive? We make his death and his resurrection nothing. So, if God is saying to us that our acceptance in front of him is not based on our works, then what does that mean about our way as a community of showing acceptance here in the church of Jesus Christ? And I believe it shows itself like this. We always offer gracious acceptance before We demand obedience. We always graciously offer acceptance before we demand obedience. It's difficult, isn't it? 
Because when we were in youth group, we would hear all the time, you can't come to church like that. Leave your sin at the door. What do you do when the sin's in me? Am I not allowed to check in? And sometimes we've let that mentality migrate into our older years. That church is the place you show up to if you're good enough. Yet, when our own Lord was on the earth, he said, I'm not here for the perfect. I'm not here for the righteous. I'm here for the sick. I'm here for the lost. It's difficult because sometimes we want to feel good about ourselves. Is that not why? Sometimes why we set standards for acceptance. Now hear me on this again. Standards are important. Myself as a leader of the church, there should be standards on me. Amen? <laughs> I can't like go out and do whatever I want. Not that I want to do any of those things that I would even suggest, right? But I can't live life like hell and show back up here and be like, what's up everyone? I demand respect. <laughs> can't do that. But I'm not talking about the scope of leadership. I'm talking about the simple scope of the way that we just relate as a community of people. If God, through his son Jesus, met us, none of us paid for our salvation, friends. Salvation is not free, but it wasn't paid by us. It was paid by the son. Every ounce of his blood, holiness, and righteousness. So what right does that give us then to demand out of others their obedience, their righteousness, their sacrifice for us to say, oh yeah, now you belong here. Friends, we do not determine who belongs within or without the scope of God's flock. That's up to him. As a church, our calling is to simply steward the presence of Jesus as though he were here himself today. This is what we're after. Gracious acceptance extended before obedience demanded. Now, of course, the natural question that comes is this. Well, Pastor Billy, then are you saying that if someone is in sin, that you should say nothing? Right? Of course not. Of course not. But I want to flip the mentality that we have about even the way we call out or the way that we address sin in another. I want to say this, okay, church. When Jesus came to earth, he wasn't so much scared of the prostitutes, the sinners, and the people who were blatantly in sin. You know who Jesus was really scared of? Well, he wasn't scared of them, but you know who he was opposed to? It was the righteous ones, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious ones. I remember I was at a conference and there was um, a Latina pastor who was, who was sharing from the pulpit about her, her church experience. And she was like, she was fiery. She was passionate, right? It was at a church planter conference and talking about if you want to be a church planter, you got to like go with the heart of God, right? And she gave us this story. She said she was like getting ready for Sunday service. And suddenly this, this older, older lady, right? She was like well-respected lady in the church goes, pastor, pastor, right? Comes up to her. She's like, pastor, I need to tell you something. 
That young man who, who's outside, he's always doing the coffee bar service, right? I guess they had like a coffee, you know, someone would serve coffee before the service, right? I caught that young man. She was like, what'd you catch him doing? I caught him. He went to the side of the building and he was smoking. How dare he smoke in the house of God, right? And of course, and this pastor is like, oh, wow. Thanks for telling me what I already know. And this lady, she's confused. She's like, what do you mean, pastor? You, go, go, you have to go rebuke him, right? Tell him that he's wrong, right? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, I ex- had to explain to this older, well-respected lady in our church that that brother had just gone out of rehab who was doing hardcore drugs. And she looked at this old lady and said, don't you think we should clap that he's gone down to cigarettes? I remember when she shared this illustration, how it impacted me. I remember thinking to myself, how many times do I judge a person just by what they do without hearing their story? Without hearing where they come from? You know, church is really easy when you go, hey, here's the 20 commandments of our community. You're good if you follow them. But you're bad if you don't. You know, it's easy to do that. Because then you just have to treat people like objects. Who just need to do something to prove themselves. The church... It's a messy place. How many conversations have I had with people? The first time I had to hear someone, a brother, look at me and say, Pastor Billy, can you pray for me? And I said, sure. In my naivete, Pastor Billy, could you pray for me? I said, brother, you got to get the pastoral game face on, right? Brother, how can I pray for you? I made my girlfriend get an abortion. And I can't sleep. What do you say to someone like that? Wow, brother, you have broken the commands of God. Shame on you. You should go to hell for for killing a life. Or maybe that person is sharing because they're already filled with so much shame. Because they're asking the question, I have done some things that I cannot repair. That if it were up to me, I would send myself to hell for. Pastor, friend, church member, can you tell me once again who your God is? Can I belong here with my sins? Can I belong here with my past? Can I belong here with everything that I have not done right in my life? You're here today, I want to say, not only on behalf of New Philly, but on behalf of Jesus Christ himself, welcome to the church of God. Welcome to the safest place that you could be. 
Does this mean that we're going to just leave you where you're at? Absolutely not, because I believe life can be so much more fun when you follow in his ways. But you know what? We'll never let that thing be the thing that we hang against you. Because Jesus doesn't do that for us. I'll end with this. <laughs> this is so telling. When we were in seminary, I was in seminary, taking my Greek Gospels class, right? Woo, fancy, right? And my professor, right, he used to be like this old surfer, Vietnam War veteran, right? It's like he's pretty hardcore, you know? It's like you can't have, you can't make excuses in front of a war, Vietnam War veteran, right? It's like, oh my gosh, right? So, I mean, he was, his class was intense. But he shared this story with us, right? He kind of paused from like our exegesis and we're going through the gospel of Mark and we're like, oh great, it's going to be like a breeze. And he, he's like, I'm going to tell you guys a story. You know, when I got out of the war, I worked as a janitor, and I made a janitor friend. And this friend knew, like, I was, like, the, the Christian, you know, and this guy knew I would go out to church and I would do all these things, right? And he would say, hey, yo, Mike, so if I want to be a Christian and do this Jesus thing, does that mean I have to stop living with my girlfriend and sleeping with her? And then he paused, and he said, all right, seminary students, how would you answer that question? He let us just discuss amongst ourselves. Remember, mind you, we have all graduated with bachelors from fine institutions. We're in a master's level class, right? You would think we should be easy peasy, right? We straight up had 15 minute group discussions and then we had to present. <laughs> no pressure at all, right? It's like dealing with salvation, right? The history of the church rests on the shoulders of these poor Greek seminary trained students, right? So everyone's giving their answers. Well, of course they have to give it up. Well, I don't know. It's fuzzy. Wait, answers were all conflicting. We couldn't get to agreement. So we finally asked our professor. All right, professor, what did you say? What did you say to your friend? So this is what I said. So the question of do I need to stop sleeping with my girlfriend and stop living with her in order to be a Christian? And he said this. No. You come just as you are with this qualification. But there will be one day when Jesus will ask that from you. He will ask you, can you offer that to me in exchange for something better? Can you give me your sin? Can you give me your lifestyle? Not because I'm trying to torture, torment, or hurt you, but because I love you. We have to understand, friends, this dynamic, this dance between obedience and faith. It makes all the difference, not only in the way that we relate with God, but especially in the way that we relate with one another. Or you don't measure someone by what they've done or what they didn't. But you just look at someone as God sees them. My son. My daughter. Made in my image.